Welcome back to yet another episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. And you can find my movie reviews and interviews in print and online around the globe 24-7, including BehindTheLensOnline.net. But every Monday, you will find me right here at AdrenalineRadio.com, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the master artisans who bring film, television, music, books to life for all of you. Uh, We are in the heat of awards season, and I have to give a huge shout-out. Hannah Beachler picked up an award for Best Production Design in a Fantasy Film over the weekend, Wakanda Forever. Needless to say, Hannah's work, she has an Academy Award nomination uh, on the horizon here. We'll see what happens at the Oscars on February 24th. Um, But it is so good to see uh, these Marvel films, these comic books brought to life, finally getting some recognition and Given the excellence, the technical excellence of Black Panther, it is so well-deserved. So can't wait to see what happens uh, come Oscar time uh, with Black Panther, which does also have a Best Picture nomination. But yay for Hannah. You uh, heard much earlier last year, around this same time before the release of Black Panther, you heard my interview uh, with Hannah talking about the production design. So I'm so thrilled. Uh, I told her back then, I said, you will hear your name come Oscar nominations morning and with Guild Awards. And I am so thrilled that that prediction came true. Today is a very eclectic and exciting show. Um, We have some very interesting guests today. We have the co-directors of One Billion Orgasms. Yes, you heard that right. A documentary brought to us by Brent Kinnitz and Terrence Mickey. They are going to be joining us. Uh, in the not-too-distant future here, there are our first live guests that are g- going to be coming up today talking about their documentary and their subject. Um, very nondescript, you know, engineer, Aaron Headley, uh, and who wants to fulfill his life's goal of everyone having a perfect orgasm. It's an interesting doc, so we're going to talk about it with the boys when they call in. And around the half-hour mark, I'm very excited to talk to director Ross Clark about his film, The Birdcatcher. It just had its world premiere at uh, Santa Barbara International Film Festival on Friday. It's a coming-of-age story set in 1942 Norway. This is another one of these World War II stories that light has not been shown upon. And I I consider myself very privileged to... I've been speaking with so many filmmakers and authors who are bringing films like this to life and shining a light on things that are not taught in the history books, such as Ruta Sapitas talking about the film Ashes in the Snow, adapted from her book, all about the Balkan, the Lithuanian uh, genocide uh, by Stalin during World War II. We, of course, have had Jeff Fry on several times already with his short film, uh, Krieg, which gives us a very interesting perspective and a new interpretation of war and the internal war that goes on. And and now we are going to be talking with Ross uh, at the midpoint of the show about this story, a coming-of-age story in 1942 Norway with the Nazi roundup of the Jews. 
and what transpired there. It is a beautifully lensed film. It is riveting, and I can't wait to talk to Ross about it. But first, you're going to get to hear my exclusive interview uh, that I just did the other day with Joe Penna. Joe is the writer and co-writer and director of Arctic. You're seeing the billboards everywhere. You're seeing ads for it. Stars Mads Mikkelsen. This is a tour de force performance by Mads. He is a pilot. He is stranded in the Arctic, uh, in the frozen tundra, and it's all about survival. And this is a, a perfect blend of Mads' performance, beautiful, beautiful cinematography that is done by John Christian Roseland. And you may have heard me mention John before, cinematographer on uh, John uh, Andreas Anderson's recent film, The Quake. And he also did Roar Utag's film of a few years ago, The Wave. His cinematography is outstanding here with Arctic. It is brilliant. And of course, the other element, in addition to Mad's performance, the cinematography is the incredible sound design and editing. And, of course, who better than the boys at Formosa? Namely, Mark Mangini, Tim Hoganocker, both who have been here in studio on Behind the Lens, and Odin Benetetz. So, without any further ado, let's take a listen to at least part one of my interview with Joe Penna talking Arctic. I have to tell you, I love Oh, great. Thank you. I was spellbound from beginning to end oh, great. with what you did. Thank you. Um, the, the two key elements, going beyond Mad's performance, yeah. which is... Just terrific. Oh, my God. Yeah. There are no words. The deliberateness of his movement, mm-hmm. the calculated efficiency. Can to, I steal those words? I'm going to start using course. them for different uh, interviews. Of course. You know, the calculated efficiency of the yeah. movement that he does do to conserve his energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just so brilliantly played. I mean, yeah. it's just like the camera will just catch mm-hmm. a look in his eye. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is so good at physically conveying with minimal movement. Mm-hmm. But then you have to look at your cinematography and your sound design mm-hmm. because this film is dependent upon the sensory experience. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you and your team, amazing. Oh, wow. Thank you. Where did this idea for this film come from? I mean, we've seen survival yeah. films before. You know, we had Hitchcock with Lifeboat. And yeah. That was a bunch of people just annoying each other. <laughs> um, we've seen, you know, Tom Hanks and his volleyball. Yeah. yeah. Robert Redford out against the sea. Sure. 127 but, hours. You got the shallows. You got Red Turtle. We got, we got everything. Yeah. But this we haven't seen before. No. Great. Great. And most people don't realize that there is a way to survive in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. They right. think all it is is snow. Well, there's snow, but there there's are other things. Yeah. So I'm curious how this idea came to you. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, I, I was a huge fan of those those films that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. You know, I... Um, I was flipping through the channels one day and I, I saw... Uh, I, I just happened to catch a black frame and I was like, oh, I'm just catching something coming back from commercial. I wonder what it is. And it wasn't that. It, it was, uh, you know, you fade up and it's a fish swimming around and then a spear comes in and hits it perfectly and then tilts up and there is Tom Hanks with his beard. 
and I was watching Castaway, and I was like, oh, I love this film, and I just watched the the film from there, mm-hmm. and I thought, wow, this is a really interesting film if you just cut the entire backstory out, you know, and you have to figure it out because I hadn't seen it in so long, you know, I had mm-hmm. to figure it out. Oh, who's who's Helen Hunt playing again? Oh, yeah, that's. I guess it's his wife. He loves her clearly, you know. Kept and he's talking. He's crazy, and and I thought it was an interesting film from there. That was something that happened years ago, and I was like, oh, I wonder if that could ever work. And when my writing partner and I started talking about a film, I thought, what about a, a survival film that's kind of like that? Well, we're, where are we going to set it? Mm-hmm. Right? Well, every everywhere has been set, so let's do something crazy and different. Let's put it on Mars. <laughs> so we put it on Mars, right? And we, we wrote an entire script called On Mars, you know, based on a, a picture that I found online. Uh, and sent it to our agents. And they said, wow, this, this is really exciting, really wonderful plotting and, and careful, uh, careful uh, storytelling here. We love it. What? <laughs> there is this trailer that you should check out on YouTube that just came out. And it was The Martian. Uh, so we, we needed to pivot. Well, so. you pivoted from something that is as desolate as Mars yeah. going to the Arctic tundra. Right. right. And the fact that you chose to film on location mm-hmm. and not CGI up the film. Right. We just didn't have the money for that. Yeah. Uh, and what, we had the What were, because you went with an Icelandic crew, because mm-hmm. they're used to working in those conditions mm-hmm. as well. So I'm curious the conversations that you had with your cinematographer when you decided. How to visually plot out this film? Yeah, yeah. Well, I brought him. I can't draw, so I can't do storyboards <laughs> to save my life. Um, and so what I do is they're called photo boards. I, I just put, take, steal things from other movies, and I put together things from the internet, and, and I Photoshop it all together. Mm-hmm. You know, so as you're going through it, there, it's kind of weird sometimes because there isn't a continuity of character. Sometimes it's Gandalf, and he's. Uh, you know, got a particular expression that I'm trying to match, you know, but, uh, you know, I get the camera angles that I need and I get everything that I need that way. Uh, and I brought that to Mads and that's what got him to sign on. So then I brought that to my uh, cinematographer and he was able to say, okay, um, I think that we can do this entire film without any lights. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's going to save us a lot of time, right? Um, I think that if you and we shot a bunch of tests and there's so much test footage of me and, and Ryan uh, trudging through parking lots full of snow uh, <laughs> that we were doing different things you know like how do we how do we get this to look different um, and and yeah so that's where uh, I needed I only had two weeks with him um, to prep right mm-hmm. the entire film um, so we then uh, started location scouting. Mm-hmm. We had about a week to location scout. And in Iceland, everything looks the same. It's just snow, right? It's yeah. just snow everywhere. So every time that I'd look and find something that I thought was looked look a little different, looked a little, oh, this is interesting, I'd put a little GPS marker on my phone. And I'd say, let's do this. And I'd take pictures, I'd take video, and I saved it all on, on my Google mm-hmm. Drive or whatever. And then we would spend all night long um, we didn't sleep <laughs> during this uh, prep time. Mm-hmm. Me and my cinematographer would say, let's put this scene here, this scene here, this scene here. Look, there's a little green mm-hmm. over here, some moss. So maybe that's, there's hope that maybe that's towards the end of the film where, we, where he's trying to find some hope. Um, or maybe that's right before the impasse that he gets to. Uh, we can show a little green, you know. Oh, there's some green here, but that's easy to remove, mm-hmm. you know, or whatever maybe. 
So it, it was just a matter of looking at a lot of images that looked pretty much the same mm-hmm. on our phones and trying to find, uh, to tell a story with the scenery and to tell a story with the camera. So then it was just about on set, I could focus on what was in front of the camera, and that was Matt's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I know that white on white is always so difficult. Mm-hmm. Very difficult to shoot, and it is the bane of existence right. for cinematographers. Right. But here, you won half the battle when you opted to go with the Coke Anamorphics. Yeah, that's it. And you didn't go with vintage, you went with the, with newer ones. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. What lens? What lens were you using? Because so much of this is wide angle, mm-hmm. and I'm talking extreme wide angle. This right. is like almost a 70 millimeter wide angle look. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, yeah. We, we couldn't shoot. We wanted to shoot with the Alexa uh, mm-hmm. 65. Right? Mm-hmm. We just didn't have the money. That would have been perfect. Right? Yeah. Revenant style, you know, and, and to do it in a way where it's uh, that. So we needed to fake that look. So we just needed to find. We knew we wanted an amorphic. Because it just gives you that, that cinematic the, the, yeah, texture. the je ne sais quoi. I don't know. Yeah. You know, if you want to be super French about it, uh, you know, it gives you that that look that immediately you know that you're watching a film. You know, yeah. uh, and Cook is just some of the best glass Cook. around. You know, spectacular. <laughs> yeah, you know, they, they deserve to trademark the, the Cook look. You know, yeah. so I, I loved Cook. We, out of all the tests that we shot, we knew we wanted Cook. Um, but we were considering, like, okay, um, anamorphics. If you're trying to shoot a close-up, that means that we're, we're putting the aperture's on, and it's time-consuming, especially when you have a uh, rain deflector on. And we realized that we couldn't fit the rain deflector, the specific one that we had, with the anamorphics and the adapter and everything mm-hmm. else. So we, we had to rely on, thankfully, Cook had a, a macro. Uh, it was 60-something, 60, 60, 65, something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, macro that we would use that for all of our close-ups. Wow. You know, something that you do so beautifully with the camera movement itself is the way you have structured the film so that the first act is primarily all wide. We feel the desolation. It it serves as the metaphor Mm -hmm. for the loneliness, the desolation, the am I ever going to get out of here. Mm -hmm. You then switch it up when the chopper comes down. Yeah, yeah. You actually start switching up once once the bear. I love the bear. I oh, you caught that. That's great. I love yeah. <laughs> the bear. It's the first time we really have anything that isn't yeah. panoramic. That's it. Yeah. So I started not touching the camera, right? I told my cinematographer, leave it alone. Uh, I, w- I saw a planet Earth, and I saw that mm. they had some motion-activated cameras that they were trying to catch these very elusive big snow cats, and I wanted that look. You know, I, I we all watched planet Earth, and... You know, my cinematographer was like, what are we doing? Like, what, what are we doing this for? Uh, but it's the stillness of this is a documentary almost, right? Yeah. And then when the bear gets there, then we start tracking. You know, mm-hmm. we, we do some, some pans and we do some tilts. Still, the camera is nodal, right? Nodal panning. Um, and then when there's more of a human presence later, then we go handheld. Oh, yeah. That suddenly became so intimate because here he was... He was no longer alone, mm-hmm. and there was a connection yeah, yeah. with somebody. Yeah, the music changes too. The, oh, the music changes mm-hmm. several times in there, and I mean, you got Joe doing your score, mm-hmm. which is just fabulous. With a name like Joe, you know, of course, of course he's going to be great. Of yeah. course, <laughs> I love how you change it up and you do go with handheld yeah. once the chopper pilot comes in. But yeah. that also gives us a greater opportunity to take advantage of what your production designer came up with, right? Because to 
the essentially celebrating the desolation. Mm-hmm. But then slowly we get little pit, bits of color. Mm-hmm. We have the flare, the, the chopper. There's some color there. There's a color picture of her family. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. life starts coming into, mm-hmm. as he's trying to save her from death, mm-hmm. life starts coming in. Mm-hmm. And the way you use the camera and mm-hmm. your production design for that, yeah. it just really, it, it's almost as if you have a musical, you know, sweep Thank you. coming yeah. in. It, that's exactly what we wanted. You know, we wanted everything to change. We wanted uh, this to almost be a song. Uh, you know, if you think about the cinematography, how important that is for this film, mm-hmm. and the sound design, how important that is, and the music, how important that is, and acting, how important that is. Like, there is because you're you're stripping away so much of this film. All of these uh, things, if if there was one of them, of these departments, basically. If there was one of them that was like, eh, you know, the music was all right, the film wouldn't work. Right. The If the color was like, ah, oh, the color was okay, the film wouldn't work. It's just the film doesn't work if all these things aren't That's perfect. just it. Yeah. And, what I th- and that was part one of my interview with Joe Penna talking Arctic. Uh, if we have time later in the show, you will hear more. Otherwise, it will all be on BehindTheLensOnline.net. One thing I do want to clarify is I misspoke. Um, because uh, the cinematographer on Arctic is Thomas Ohm Thomason. I have all of my Norwegian cinematographers and things. They were all melding. And uh, without looking at my notes, um, so that was my bad. It is Thomas Ohm Thomason uh, who does the cinematography. And he is a a well-known cinematographer in Finland where the Arctic was shot. But right now, we're going to switch gears, and I think I am welcoming, am I welcoming my boys who are out there wanting to show the world how to have a billion orgasms? <laughs> you got the right, Brent the and, right pair of people. Brent and Terrence, welcome, welcome. How are you? Very good. Thank you very much for having us. This is Terrence. Well, hello, Terrence. And where are you, Brent? Uh, we're both in the same spot. We're in Stockholm, Sweden right now. So we're together, which is not that usual for us nowadays. Oh, my God. Well, you know, you put out a film like this. I got to tell you, though, documentary is dropping here in the States tomorrow, VOD, digital, DVD. Um, this seems like a documentary that might play well in Stockholm, Sweden. Has it played there? We're going to find out tomorrow. We're doing a small uh, theatrical showing, and we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how they they uh, they take it. So I've I've got to ask you this: out of every documentary topic out there, this is so far from the realm of what I would consider comprehension for a typical filmmaker to want to make. Um, you want to focus on one man's obsession with perfecting. The, the you know and providing a billion orgasms to people and he does it an engineer develops a watch that has little lights so you're looking at little lights and when you got two green lights on there okay that's it um and it's called the squirt watch um very innovative very novel but how did the two of you decide to do this documentary and this story 
You know, we ran across Aaron, um, sort of a strange set of circumstances, but we ran across him at my high school reunion about 15 years ago, and he was absolutely the character you see in the movie at our reunion. Um, and at that point, he hadn't invested the watch, um, but he was just so earnestly dead set on telling everybody he came across in whatever setting he was in about this move that he uh, calls the I love you move that is supposed to trigger these uh, female ejaculating orgasms. And um, when I came back from the reunion, Terrence and I would get together regularly for a cup of coffee or breakfast or whatever, and we would kind of keep tabs on Aaron because he had an Internet presence. He had a website under the banner orgasmicresearch.com. And we would kind of check out what's new with him, what's new with this guy, where is he going? And when he invented the watch, and even more so when he patented the watch, and we could read the patent application online, we said, this obsession, this focus, this uh, length that he's going to, to pursue bringing this out to the world, is really interesting, especially contrasted where we grew up. He and I grew up together in northern Minnesota, where I always joke, you don't even acknowledge that orgasms exist, much less tell other people how right. to have them. So it was just a, uh, it was just too much dissonance there, and we had to dig into it, and that's what that was kind of the genesis of the movie. Well, I'm really curious as to the development of your through line here, um, because you start this out, and we're meeting this guy, and he's like an average Joe, you know, fits, you know, divorced twice, two, you know. Teen, late teenage daughters or even, you know, approaching college age, um, you know, seem he's an engineer and, and he definitely has he has all the, the atypical um, ideas of an engineer. My dad was a television engineer. My brother is one. They all have this same kind of they got to tinker with everything, fix everything, uh, play with things, develop things. Oh, this is like cool to make a new circuit board. And we see Aaron d- going through all these motions. And you're trying to figure out where where are we going with this. And then you drop the bomb after you, they, you start interviewing the parents. <laughs> um, so how did you go about structuring this through line to come up to decide on the background of where he came mild-mannered guy, and then you zing us with him at the 2015 AVN Adult Entertainment Expo. Oops, are you guys there? Yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry about that. So I'm, I'm curious how you came up with that through line to go from por- representing, portraying him as mild-mannered, you know, Aaron Hadley, engineer and dad, to then we see him in a totally different light at the AVN in 2015. So I'm curious how yeah. you, how you I mean, came we, up with that through line design. We knew that he'd be a complicated character and divisive character, and it's, it's easy, a character one could easily dismiss right away. So in the editing process, we were really careful, almost to mimic our own experience of him. You know, he drew us in with this. Not only his crazy ambition, but there is just the contrast of where he comes from and how earnest he is with women's sexual pleasure and people exploring their pleasure. I mean, his message in, in a lot of ways is very positive. Um, but as we got to know him more and we began to film him more, we saw you know, a lot of 
different nuances to his character that we wanted people to slowly be introduced to rather than just him full-fledged Aaron right off the bat. So the editing process was very much about kind of revealing his character as we understood him gradually um, and leading you to kind of a full understanding of him by the end of the picture so that we don't editorialize, we don't judge, we just leave the audience with a full, you know, 360-spectrum view of who Aaron is as a person and leave it to you to kind of, you know, see where you fit on the spectrum of who he is to you. But it was really important for us to have people have an inroad to just kind of understand his humanity first before they understood the rest of the, the picture. Mm-hmm. No, and I think you very smartly designed it that way so that we could get to see who he is and understand some of his drive that would that would make him so obsessed. But I mean, I it, I it's very entertaining to watch him as he's going going through the convention and really he's trying as hard as he can to develop an interest from people in this watch. I'm curious, how much film footage did you guys get? And filming at a convention like that, did you run in and into any logistic obstacles with not being allowed in certain areas or prohibiting footage? You know, uh, everybody was so open, <laughs> and it's, it's kind of ironic. I mean, you're at an adult uh, expo, and uh, everybody's open, but they were. And there were so many cameras around that it was really actually kind of fantastic from a from a cinematography standpoint because you really had people just totally relaxed around the cameras because they were being overloaded by cameras. Mm-hmm. And this particular character, one of the reasons why he worked well for us was because he is himself in front of the camera, even when there's only one camera in the room. Mm-hmm. But the environment that we were in had so many cameras and so many people and looking all different directions So we didn't run into those logistical problems. I think sound was a real issue for us because it was a very noisy place. And to get the sound right for the people that he was talking to was complicated. Um, And the light was changing. So there were some technical challenges. Mm -hmm. But logistically, people were just so open and people were very open to talk to us about it. And, you know, we included some of that in the footage. and, And we just rolled camera really from the moment he woke up in the morning until the moment he went to bed. So, you know, over five days, I think we picked up a little over 80 hours of footage um, uh, or so because uh, we were just rolling so much camera. Well, you brought up two very... Also... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, we also just received a lot of family footage from from him from his past. Um, and then we went up to Minnesota to film his family and him up there. And we went back to, to Plano, Texas one other time. So we probably clocked in. I mean, all considering archive and kind of cinema verte footage of him, like 200 hours. All right. How do you cull through 200 hours? Did you wait till you had all of it amassed and assimilated? Or did you start doing some editing as you were going to get a better feel and narrow down uh, subject matter and content? We had one cut that we did early on that we screened in New York, and we got a lot of feedback based on that. And probably with that cut, we had only 80 hours. And it really kind of brought to light just what was missing. So Mm -hmm. we went back to get other footage. And we really clung to that first edit because we thought a lot of parts worked. 
But once we had amassed the rest of the footage, we really had to reconsider, you know, the, the breadth of the movie and what story we were telling. And the answer to how do you call that is <laughs> real patience and, and, and really just dedication, you know, just really going back to the, the, the footage and really, you know, looking at what we have and what's the story that we're telling. And, you know, what we really clung to was Aaron's the main focus, what's the relationship for the audience with him, and what do we need to kind of fully develop him as a character and tell his story in this moment in his life. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, that's what we hung the arc of the story on. Um, but there were a lot of other rabbit holes we could have gone down that we had to prevent ourselves because with that much footage, it's easy to, to create a very diffuse picture um, and we wanted one that was really sharp and focused. Yeah, I mean that's that's. And a we way. sure did. And we sure did. It's just worth mentioning. Uh, we sure did go down some rabbit holes. You know, we first started thinking we had our movie in the can at eighty hours, um, and we liked it. We liked that movie, um, <laughs> but it was then seeing it with other people where we realized its problems and its shortcomings. So then we went out and got another hundred and twenty hours, and then we still had cuts after that. That in some ways worked for us, but did not work for the audience. So mm. it, it was some, you know, it was some trial and error. And I think that's kind of inherent to this kind of character where you're trying to figure out and we're growing with the character analysis as well. So mm-hmm. um, it was, it was definitely a process of trial and error. You know, you brought up something earlier, uh, shooting actually at the convention, two elements that, Every any anybody in news, anybody's ever been to report on something. You're in a convention situation, and the sound is always horrible to get any decent sound, and the lighting vacillates from one extreme to the other just by moving from one booth to the next one. Uh, so I'm curious how you met those challenges because your sound quality from things on the convention floor it belies what you normally would be hearing on the convention floor, or shall I say, not hearing. You really did overcome these challenges, and I'm curious how you did that. We were a two-person crew, so we were pretty kind of invisible to everyone around us. We kind of blended in pretty easily. And I had him mic'd, so I was doing the sound, and I was kind of hiding, you know, just kind of in the sidelines. And I had him mic'd really close to his, um, the very top of his shirt. And I, he was wearing clothes that was loose enough, but I knew that it wouldn't get too much scraping against his skin or his shirt. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just made sure I kind of kept an eye on him to make sure the mic was always positioned in a way that was going to give the best sound for him. And luckily enough, you know, when he was talking to other people, they were close enough. And I had a kind of, you know, it was intimate enough sound that I could, lead out some of the background um but you still i mean you still get the thumping beats and that stuff but i really tried to mute that and kind of get his voice um as clear and succinct as possible and it was just kind of really keeping tabs on him to make sure that that mic was placed in a way that it wasn't getting all the directional sound of the convention and it was really just like you were you know in the room with Aaron only um but it was it was yeah it was constant monitoring and constant adjustment to make sure that yeah, that I, I could get get as much of that background noise to a minimum as possible. I mean, that's something I have to tell you that I was really impressed by that because I, I'm in Vegas every year for the NAB, the National Association of Broadcasters Convention, and it is a madhouse, and it is the sound, the ambient sound is cacophonous. So 
you know, as people can see on screen in One Billion Orgasms, people are leaning into Aaron to talk to him because you really can't hear each other any other way. And I think that really helped you um, with your mic positioning and with people leaning in because if they don't lean in, they can't hear what he's saying and he's not going to be able to hear what they're saying. So you did a, a wonderful job on the sound with this one. Thank you. And I didn't anticipate that it would be sound that intimate because I was really expecting the worst just because when we walked into that convention the first time, I said, this is going to be impossible because <laughs> there was every rock and roll song you've ever heard blasting, you know, constantly. Um, but luckily there were like those intimate spaces where you, where they were talking very closely where I could make it work. But yeah, thank you for that. I appreciate that you even noticed that. You know, how did you combat um, lighting? Were you, did you have a light kit that you were using, or were you just going with the ambient light within, within the hotel, within the convention center? Yeah, I would say 99% of what you see had no lights other than what was natural in the, in the setting that we were filming in. Um, we just didn't have time to set up any lighting, so we just kind of ran camera on a, as flexible a setting as we could. And then I think I can also give a good shout out to our colorist um, who just really went through these scenes and, and tackled them. And there were times, you know, even if you're sitting still on your camera on a tripod and you're looking right at him in the booth, there's something going around out, around him that's changing the, the temperature of the light. And she would just work through those scenes kind of sometimes frame by frame to kind of even them out so it didn't distract you from watching it. So it was really a run-and-gun production, and it was really, it's the first time I've ever shot a movie on camera, mm -hmm. and I think, it's, Terrence, it's the first time you've ever done sound on a movie. Um, so we certainly didn't come to it with experience or um, anything, but we studied up as best as we could, and we had, I think, decent equipment, and uh, then we just started rolling camera. What camera were you shooting with on this one? A Sony A7S. And and the sevens they pick up on they pick up low light so that yeah it, yeah that's very beneficial yeah that was intentional to go with the best light because we didn't know what kind of situations that we get into and we did get into some pretty dark situations in in the light, from a lighting perspective and other perspectives as well but uh, from a lighting perspective so it was nice to be able to walk um, through the zones and be able to have that flexibility on the camera so now. I have to ask you guys, did you at least get gifted these watches that you can now, you know, use and experiment with yourselves in the future? Uh, but, you know, has this changed your perception of anything and the whole experience? How has it impacted your perception of filmmaking? Well, there's a lot in that question, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. <yeah. laughs> As you, as you probably observed with Aaron, uh, yes, we absolutely got gifted the watches because he tends to give the watches away pretty freely. Which is why he'll he never make money. He up with you and asks how it's been going. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, he, uh, but I'll tell you, there, there's something about spending those days at an adult conference and you realize how much of it is pornography and how much of it is certain sorts of things. Generally, often, quite often derived for individuals to consume in, in their own, you know, private space. And there's nothing wrong with that. But Aaron's is the one device that you can't use by yourself. And you can't sneak up on somebody and use his device. So 
So I can say in my own, you know, personal relationship, it brought me into a zone of communication and discussion and uh, kind of coordination in a way that, you know, was sort of charming and sort of eye-opening, even though I've, uh, you know, it had certainly, you know, I'm, I'm not a young man in that sense, but it just opened my eyes up to like, wow, there is something about communication around all this stuff. And it's, it's such an important part of all of our lives. Uh, yet we spend so little time talking about it. And it was, and if I take anything away from the film in that sense, it was really related to just the communication that has to go on around this move around the watch um, and, uh, and, you know, between the, the two partners that are engaging in it. And, and of course, communication helps you immeasurably when you're collaborating on a film. Yeah, definitely. I think as filmmakers, the whole experience, when we were writing scripted work together, and we'd always been drawn to kind of outsized, outsized characters and both love documentaries but never thought we'd do one. And there's something really invigorating about finding a character that just keeps you invested and interested as a filmmaker uh, through the whole project, and then sharing that with the world. Um, and Aaron is a character that you know we probably couldn't have come up with out of you know a, a fictional um, script. And it's just really energizing to be working with you know life um, and and that story kind of being crafted not only by your editing, but just by what's happening to that person. And, you know, I could never have anticipated how exciting and really just kind of consistently engaging it is. Well, guys, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. This has been very eye-opening. Um, again, the you know, Brent, Terrence, I mean, job well done. I can't wait to see what you do next. But in the meantime, everybody can see One Billion Orgasms tomorrow DVD, uh, on demand, VOD, digital download. It, it's everywhere tomorrow on all the platforms, correct? Yeah, it's everywhere. It's on iTunes, Amazon, Vudu, Vimeo, all the regular suspects. And you can go to our website, One Billion Orgasms, to find out everything about where you can watch it. Terrific. Guys, thank you so much. And I can't wait to see what you do next and have you back on the show. Thanks so much. We're looking forward to it. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. And now we're switching gears completely. And I'm so, so happy to welcome director Ross Clark. Hello, Ross. Thank you for joining Behind the Lens. Hi. Very pleased to be here. What a beautiful, beautiful film The Birdcatcher is. Thank you. It, I... Just the history alone in the script uh, was something I did not know. Um, you really opened my eyes to a new piece of history. I'm curious how this story found its way into your hands. Um, well, I met, I was introduced to the producer, Lisa Black, um, by another producer friend of mine, Leon Clarence. And... Um, Lisa had developed this script with the Norwegian American Initiative, uh, and uh, she gave it to me, asked me to read it, and I read it in one sitting and was immediately uh, very excited and wanted to do it because, like you, I didn't really know much about this history. No, I mean that's and 
and that's one of the things I love about film is it, it will shine a light on these pieces of history that are not common knowledge that we don't know about and we should. And, you know, this, I did not realize the whole Nazi roundup in Norway uh, in 1942-43. So for me, this was, it was a great eye-opener. But what makes this even more eye-opening and more riveting is the visual tonal bandwidth that you create with your storytelling, your saturation, your use of color, and that color juxtapositioned against the snow-covered forests that look almost black and white, the mounds of snow, but all that color then shows us everything is not black and white. And it also juxtapositions against the horror that is unfolding within the story of this young girl, Esther. Beautifully, beautifully yeah. designed, Ross. So I'm curious um, what, you know, what your thoughts were uh, when you were, how you worked with John in coming up with the beautiful visual design. Yeah, I mean, it was very, um, it sort of start, it started with the script because from all the script, had um, a, 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 not a single person point. It had multiple viewpoints, and yeah. I, I immediately wanted to bring it to, to Esther's viewpoint. And from there, by using the single viewpoint, I also wanted to look at what a, a teenager's eye view of the war might have been, as opposed to, you know, we get these typical kind of sepia or dark, gloomy kind of looks at them. Mm-hmm. And actually... Films like Pan's Labyrinth were more of a reference to me and something that just gave you a kind of heightened sense of reality because of her age mm-hmm. and because of what she was going through. And, and you know, John Christian really was excited about that, as as were the production designers also and the costume designers. And the four of us worked very hard together to kind of bring all those colours into the Norwegian winter and into 1942, which I think, you know, is one of the things I'm most proud of in the film is the look of the film and the feeling it gives you of this kind of very heightened sense of reality that she's going through. Mm -hmm. And, of course, aiding that heightened sense of reality is Esther's love of Hollywood movies and wanting to come to Hollywood and become an actress. So you have these beautiful sequences where you know, reality melds into her dreams or or her nightmares. And that really, you really celebrate the color and the heightened and the surreal nature of her world in those moments. Exquisitely done, Ross. Really powerful, powerful storytelling. Yeah, it's just really, you know, it's such a powerful story, as you're saying. It's such a kind of horrible series of events that she got you know, I just wanted to almost feel that in a more like you would almost in a horror film or in a Lynchian kind of way, you know, just uh, really kind of get into her head, get into her skin and make the audience feel that journey and go there with her. So I have... And of course, Sarah Sophie's performance is just stunning, I think. Talk to me about casting Sarah Sophie as Esther. Your cast, all unknown to the American audiences, 
But the performances are outstanding. Sarah Sophie Busnina is, she is wonderful as Esther. Then you've got Arthur uh, Hakalahadi as Axel. Yeah. And, of course, a stand, an interesting character for me is the character of uh, Johan, who is Axel's father, played by Jacob uh, Sedergren. Um, yeah. How did you go about your casting process here to put together this cast? Because you have, you're trying to cast the visual look with Esther and her family with the darker hair. Then you have, of course, the Scandinavian look of Axel and with his father. And then you have the Nazis. And what's interesting is that for the, your primary Nazi officer characters who are, you know, who essentially Johan is, you know, he's kissing up to them um, for his own yeah. political aspirations and lets them stay on the farm and eat and drink and get drunk and, and have a good old time. You cast against, they're not, so often we see them, Nazis cast with a darker palette to them. Um, here, most of the characters, they are all more typical of the Aryan youth, um, the much younger you know, youth that Hitler was um, promulgating at the time. So I'm curious, how yeah. do you put this cast together from a performance and from a visual standpoint? Well, I think from a performance standpoint, I mean, the Scandinavian talent is, Huge. I, I've watched, you know, in the UK where I'm from London, I watch a lot of shows like The Killing and The Bridge, and you know, you you get this, you get these cast. Some of these people, like Thursday B. and Doug, who plays her father, had I'd seen in um, The Bridge and The Killing, for instance. And uh, Johannes is from Force Majeure, which is a film I was a big fan of. Um, and we had a brilliant casting director in Oslo. And uh, it, I was worried for a while finding the character of Esther because that the film does hinge on her. Mm -hmm. And um, but we went to this one casting, and and, and weirdly, Jacob and Sarsafi were both in that casting, and they played each, uh, played off each other in in the, the scene actually where he where he gives her the meat and asks her if she likes it here, mm -hmm. and they did such a brilliant together I, I immediately knew that you know we had we had them and, and we had these characters and Jacobs um, you may have seen the film The Guilty I mean he's so mm -hmm. brilliant in that film as well which was the Danish Oscar nominee and he won last night a Danish um, Oscar in fact for that performance um, but I think that in terms of what you're talking about with the Germans and the and the Norwegians, I, I mean, it's interesting. Hitler was a huge fan of Norway and Trondheim, particularly, where the film is set. He really believed this was the centre of the Aryan sort of super race. And, and you know, he was going to make Trondheim the northern capital of Europe. Um, at the same time, you know, pertaining to what you were talking about earlier, you have uh, a Jewish community that was relatively peaceful mm -hmm. um, compared to a lot of Jewish communities in, in the rest of Europe. And so it was very sudden and violent, the change that happened in October 1942. And that story at the beginning with Henry Gladitz, the theatre director, who's 
arrested and executed is, you know, all completely true. We actually shot in the theatre that that happened in. Wow. Um, so, you know, yeah, there's a statue outside there, and it's really an incredible history. And, and, and Trondheim is the northernmost synagogue in Europe as well. And the woman that runs that Jewish museum there in the synagogue now, she's a granddaughter of one of the few survivors who came back um, who died quite recently, sadly. And she was our consultant, you know, historical consultant. So uh, there's a lot of time and effort gone into the history of it. And the Norwegians are very, you know, thorough and proud of their history. Obviously not proud of that part of their history. Mm-hmm. But, but um, you know, normally those stories are hero stories they tell, resistance stories. So this film is unusual in that it tells a story of how many Norwegians were compromised and by the occupation and by the fact that Quisling was a, you know, uh, worked with the Nazis directly. Mm-hmm. You know, as a director, it's always incumbent upon you uh, and it's your responsibility to, to create a, a good film, uh, to tell a good story. How much more personal responsibility do you take on? Does Does it weigh on your shoulders when history is involved, especially here, with you know such truths that are coming out in this in this script and in this movie, yeah, I mean we did all very specifically and um and that's why you know I went to see these people at the synagogue about four or five times and talked through the script and asked her if there were any anomalies, you know anything she thought that was really inaccurate um we had another historical consultant in Oslo. Obviously, as, a, as an English person going to Norway, you also want to respect their history and their, you know, their knowledge of their own country. Mm-hmm. So I'm always I'm fascinated by learning about other people, histories, and cultures. Anyway, so I, you know, whether I'm making a film or not, I'm interested in that. And um, it is important to get, you know, obviously it's a drama. It's not all completely true, but it's important to get that kind of baseline stuff mm-hmm. really right. And I think. Also, what I wanted to talk about was something that was more universal as well, which is something that's relevant today, which is how racism or prejudice work and affect people and how in conflict and when these things are allowed to come to the forefront, how everyone is compromised. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whether that's the German officer or the wife of the farmer or the farmer, I mean, I have some weird sympathy for all the characters in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, because they're all not living the lives they want to live and they're all compromised in some way or other. And I think they all realise it and they're all just trying to survive. And obviously the the focus of that is Esther, but also Arthur, who, um, Axel, sorry, who is brilliantly played by Arthur because he's disabled and obviously the Nazis were just as prejudiced against the disabled as they were against the Jews. Mm-hmm. And of course, here we have Axel's own father prejudiced against him because he wasn't born perfect. Um, yeah. You touch on everything and, here. <laughs> it, 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 it's a good script that gives you a lot to work with. And, and I think, uh, you know, it does. I just wanted to sort of. I'm not a great believer in 
I'm, I don't know. I just wanted to understand how the compromise works for mm. people across the board, and so so not to kind of paint people completely black or white, mm-hmm. you know, completely good or completely evil, but to understand how how this works. And but obviously our sympathies lie with Esther and Arthur and Axel. Sorry, but but the things she has to do to survive make us question. Mm-hmm. What is it worth doing to survive? Right. As well? I will say the one character I have no sympathy or empathy for in the film is Fred, yeah. uh, <laughs> Johan's brother Fred. <laughs> okay, okay, there, there's no redeeming value of Fred. <laughs> he, he's not compromised. He's just compromised. Period. Um, by alcohol. By alcohol. Yeah, but yeah. he just likes to drink. You know. How logistically challenging was this for you? Because you shot on location, not just in Norway, but you actually shot in Trondheim. And there you are, you're, you're battling the elements, and the elements can always impact a production. So I'm curious, how, were there any challenges that weather presented and, or the time of year uh, in terms of your equipment? So often I hear horror stories about equipment freezing up or batteries can't get warm. And then how beneficial was it to have a cinematographer like John Christian who is used to filming in more inclement climates, shall we say? Yeah, I think that's really... I mean, it, it's a bit like the difference between Heathrow and sometimes airports, which is Heathrow will close down after two cents, an inch of snow, and, and Trondheim Airport will, will stay open after a foot of snow. You know, so the Norwegians really know what they're doing in the snow. I was really the only one who didn't. And I, <laughs> I was looked after by them and fell over many times and dragged out of the snow. Um, but, you know, John Christian and his team and all the teams really just, they just handled it very easily. Um, to be honest, I was amazed. We filmed on an ice lake. We moved further north to get the snow up in um, near the border with Sweden, you know, in, where we found the beautiful farm. And, it was, I mean, I'm not saying it was easy because it's an indie movie and we didn't have many days. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the weather, they just handled it very smoothly. And I think Norwegian crews are technically brilliant, but also brilliant in that weather, obviously. Oh, they, they truly are. And I know John Christian, I'm a huge fan of his work, what he did on The Wave with Roar Utag, and then what he just did on yeah. The Quake with John Andreas Anderson. I love his work. Um, so to see yeah, him in a right. film that is, that's not, you know, doing the cinematography, the lighting and lensing on a film that is not involving a natural disaster, um, <laughs> but yeah. to, to see, let his dramatic storytelling skills as a cinematographer come out, this is a real treat. And I have to say, um, you know, always, whenever you're shooting snow, that is difficult upon difficult upon difficult for a director and a cinematographer uh, in terms of trying to get your shading right, reflection, things like that. And here, I mean, it's picture postcard. The snow scenes, mm-hmm. the the snow on the bare brown tree limbs, the contrast that creates that black and white look. Absolutely beautifully done. Beautifully done. Um, so... Yeah, they, they made- very easy, uh, I can tell you. You know, you um, you yeah, gave me a, yeah. a gift by seeing a new side of John Christian's cinematography. So thank you for that, Ross. 
good, good. You know, I have to ask you about Jim Copperthwaite's score. Um, the music here is very important for filling some of the silence, some of the painful silences that the film does have. And also for underscoring some of the violence that's happening. So I'm curious about your conversations with Jim in terms of what you were looking for in the score for The Birdcatcher. Well, I I mean, we had a lot of conversations. I sat in his studio with him and we went through the film piece by piece. And and obviously, I don't like music to be true intrusive other than maybe once or twice in a movie. I don't like... I, I find films are too noisy these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, don't, I, don't really, I don't really need to be hit around the head all the time. And I hope we sort of walked that line where we created a score that was moving and helped the movie, but wasn't too intrusive. And, um, you know, that was something that Jim was very good at, and I would often say, can we reel it in, reel it in? And he's got an incredible range. He's got he's, in, he's incredibly easy to work with again. And he he really, I think, some of the themes, like he used the Norwegian fiddle for one of the themes, and he really nailed it, you know, um, in that way, and, and really was a joy to work with. But I think that, as you say, I mean, I've watched the film three times this weekend over the Santa Barbara Film Festival, and there's a lot of there's a lot of silence and there's a lot of great uh, moments mm-hmm. with the score and and it's just the sound designers and and Jim and John I just think were just incredible. Really enjoyed working with them and and really I think it's quite subtle. I, I enjoy that about the film. Well, one thing I have to ask you because the world premiere was Friday night at Santa Barbara International yep. Film Festival, and it did play this weekend. So how has the audience reaction been? How did the festival audience receive The Birdcatcher? Uh, I mean, I couldn't have a bad audience. I mean, people were, there were people crying at the end. There were people gasping throughout, and um, people coming up and saying really nice things about the movie. And, you know, I just think that, the performances, the cinematography, the music, um, the story all stand up for themselves and work really well. And we got, you know, three full houses and three great reactions. So mm-hmm. I, I couldn't be happier. I, I, I think this story is important now because of the sort of political situation across mm-hmm. the world that we see, the rise of populism. And I think that... I'm happy if people kind of respond to this film because I think I want, you know, I want people to think about these things and I know it is something that's on people's minds and it's good to get that story out there. Uh, It's a very important story to get out there, you know, and once again, it just shows us, you know, history always repeats itself. And well, hopefully not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully not (laughs) to the extreme, but in terms of the discrimina- discrimination and, you know, the the interpersonal relationships and the political turmoil in the world. Absolutely, uh, yeah. So I we, mean, we talked about she could have been she could have been Syrian, this, this girl. You know, she mm-hmm. could have been any number of people, any number of times through history, and and obviously, you know, that's important sort of understand that. Mm-hmm. So now, where does the bird catcher go from here? 
Uh, we've got a few festivals lined up in March. We're playing in Trondheim, in fact, in Norway, which is uh, great. Uh, a Cosmorama festival. And then we're playing um, uh, Boca Raton and Rare Booth um, Jewish film festivals over on the East Coast. And with the opening night film at the Garden State Film Festival on March 29th, which is going to be a great night. I think they have a 1,600-seat screen, so that's exciting. Mm-hmm. And um, and then our sales team are in Berlin next week, so uh, selling the film and hopefully you know, securing distribution in the U.S. and I hope in the U.K. and around the world as well. Well, I suspect that this there are going to be many offers for this film, Ross, and that uh, it's going to get snatched up rather quickly in the U.S. and abroad. I hope so, yeah. We definitely got a good response. Well, Ross, unfortunately, we're all out of time on the show today. I can't thank you enough for calling. Thank you so much. Um, Again, I, I absolutely love this film. It is exquisite. It is emotionally powerful. It is moving, and it is another one of those films that everybody needs to see and must see. So, well, I appreciate it, and um, yeah, thank you for talking to me about it. It's been a pleasure. And I hope to talk to you again in the future. Yeah, definitely. Thank Thanks you. so much, Roz. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. And that was Ross Clark talking The Birdcatcher. So it is out on the festival circuit, people. Hopefully, it will get a distribution deal soon. But right now, you can go to theaters now and see. Joe Payne is Arctic with Mads Mikkelsen. And tomorrow, everybody can watch One Billion Orgasms on VOD, digital download, DVD. Uh, And hey, if you're in Stockholm, Sweden, and we do have a lot of European listeners, so check it out because it's going to be playing at a festival there tomorrow. Uh, So that is all the time we have. Next week, we have more fun for you. Um with some great guests lined up. So until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 